both these players, I think there's a DNA part of them um, that, you know, we need a little bit more snot to our game. And I think they both bring a little bit of that. Um, so we felt it was a good day yesterday. Hey everybody, special edition of the Fan Drive Time, 4 to 6 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. I am Ben Ennis. Yeah, so it, it used to be truculence that the Toronto Maple Leafs were missing. Uh, was snot. They're a quiet team. Less quiet now, it must be said, as Brad Tree Living upset the uh, Twitterati on the opening day of free agency with uh, Ryan Reeves and John Klingberg inking uh, contracts with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Reeves on, on a three-year deal, Klingberg on just a one-year deal, but totally redeemed himself yesterday as uh, Max Domi and Tyler Bertuzzi also signing one-year deals is yeah at least kind of cementing themselves as the ideal landing spot for players looking to get a little extra shine headed into free agency maybe recoup some value especially for a salary cap that is expected to go up uh significantly more than just the one million dollars uh this year all right let's talk to uh pierre mcguire former nhl executive thanks for doing this pierre the term snot i, I don't know if i've i've heard a, a team uh referred to as missing some snot have you uh, I have, but not usually in for the public consumption. Um, usually behind closed doors in, in scouting meetings or, or managerial meetings. But all that being said, everybody chooses their own way of describing things. Um, I will say this in agreement. Bertuzzi and Domi definitely provide, I, I guess I'll use a Brian Burke statement, truculence. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a positive for a team that has been relatively quiet. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously you look at it, uh, two teams, the Boston Bruins and the Toronto Maple Leafs, really sold out to try to win this past year. And both of them were knocked out pretty early, uh, frustratingly so for their fan bases and for their management teams and ownership groups. And I think you saw both of them try to uh, at least regroup a little bit. But Toronto's been uh, far more successful so far. Yeah, they have. And, and some big uh, losses for the Bruins in free agency. Some big losses from the, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, in regards to free agency as well. And we'll maybe get to that in just a second. But those two guys in particular. You know what? Maybe let's take um, the, the whole of the, the first couple of days of free agency, Pierre. If, if we're judging... Um, what we think Brad Tree Living thinks of this Toronto Maple Leafs core. Is there, is there anything we can infer? Well, he wanted to make them harder to play against, no question. I think with Max in particular, you get that. Bertuzzi, um, I, I thought, had a real nice playoff for the Boston Bruins. He was solid. He was uh, hard on the forecheck. He created offense. Uh, he's reliable defensively. Um, he's fearless. So, uh, you know, I, you get both guys on one-year deals. Um, I, I think it's more the players knew that there probably wasn't a lot of landscape they could go to. Um, and with them going to Toronto, it gives them an opportunity as an organization, I think, to to showcase themselves in a major market. Um, I, I had to laugh a little bit. A lot of media members were saying Bertuzzi would never come back to Canada because he refused to take the COVID shots. Well, mm-hmm. All it takes is one team in Canada, and you see what's happened. Tyler Bertuzzi's back in Canada. Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, that, that was an issue a number of years ago. Not so much now. Um, and you mentioned the one-year deal thing. I mean, Luke Shen gets paid after 26 games with the Leafs and then into the, the playoffs last season. Michael Bunting, we know what, what happened to his career as far as legitimizing himself as, as a top-six forward. Um, and, and he hits it big in Carolina. Justin Hall, he got, to, he got a pay bump in Detroit. Nola Chari. Same deal um, in Pittsburgh. I mean, you look at the, the history of guys coming here on short-term deals, Pierre. 
it really does feel like that that might be an advantage for the Toronto Maple Leafs in in selling themselves on shorter term deals to free agents that hey you come here and especially if you're a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi and you're expected to play maybe alongside Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner you play for 82 games and and you have a good postseason run and and that you can parlay that into something pretty significant in in the upcoming free agent landscape. Ben, that's really well said, and I agree with you 100%. I, I think the biggest thing is it's showcase cinema for both those players, Bertuzzi and Domi in particular. Um, you know, Reeves has a three-year deal, so not nearly as much. And by the end of that deal, I'd imagine his career is probably near the end, if not at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say that you're right on. And, and the biggest thing is, again, the players that are coming in there, and I'm talking about the two higher-end guys with Bertuzzi and Domi, they know what they have to bring. Mm-hmm. Um, and Max will know better than anybody because of his father um, and the fact that his dad was a Toronto Maple Leaf and played on some really good teams in Toronto. So, no, I, you know, is it perfect? Is it perfect what Toronto did yesterday in the last couple of days? Probably not, but is it good? Yeah, it's solid. It's very, very solid. Yeah, and, and it's a couple guys in, in Domi specifically, well, Klingberg as well, who, I mean, you look at, at their advanced numbers, you, you look at their 200 uh, feet uh, worth of play over, over their entire careers, really, but especially last year when you're talking about Klingberg, and, and maybe we can talk about the specific um, instances of playing for the worst team in hockey impacting that, but those are, those are guys that are generally offensive-minded players with defensive liabilities. Does that fit, to your mind, what the Toronto Maple Leafs need, especially considering the way they went out in five games to the Florida Panthers? Well, goaltending is going to have to be more consistent. End zone coverage is going to have to be more consistent. That's more than just a couple players. That's team concepts, and that comes down to Sheldon Keith and the coaching staff. Um, the one thing I'll say about Klingberg, I, I've done a lot of his games over time. Uh, he's a bit of a riverboat gambler, but he's a little bit better defensively than what you think. Um, he's got a lot more grit factor to him than what you think. Uh, he did some good things in Minnesota last year. Uh, he was a plus player there. In the regular season, he was a plus player for them in the playoffs. Uh, but he's got a little bit more grit than, than people have given him credit for. So I, I actually think that that is a pretty good acquisition, especially when you consider, again, he's only on a one-year deal. So it's hard. It's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. But here, here's something, just big picture. If you really look at it, the Atlantic – division now could legitimately have five teams make the playoffs next year and the metropolitan could only have three Mm. that really could happen that's legit based on what's happened here in the last few days um and i would think that toronto would be one of those five teams after that you know anything that happens happens but um the the biggest thing now i think going forward because there's been kind of a cleansing in the eastern conference with some of these teams, and some are going through major overhauls, Philadelphia being one of them, potentially Washington being another. Um, It's going to be really, really interesting to see how some of this stuff plays out. Uh, So Ryan Reeves gets the initial uh, free agent headlines because he's a big name. People know him, and and he does fit that mold of fan favorite, especially in in this city, but I imagine a lot of cities across the the National Hockey League because he he plays with that physical force that obviously the, the Toronto Maple Leafs missed at times now, can he play uh, enough to, to impact the game, especially in the postseason? That's yet to be determined at that advanced age, although he's played a lot of postseason games, Pierre. I mean, we talk about snot. Uh, Brad Drew Living called it a quiet group. Uh, Ryan Reeves, obviously not that. Like, he steps in and, and is already uh, the most vocal Toronto Maple Leaf. He's doing all kinds of interviews and, and obviously not afraid to speak his mind. Does he have enough, though, in the tank um, to stay on the ice enough to be an impact player, but besides the things that he can bring outside of his, his play on the ice? 
Well, he's one of the most feared guys in the NHL. There's no question, but he's also pushing 36 years of age. Um, and you do that for long enough. And you talk about the amount of playoff games. I think Ben, he's played over a hundred playoff games in yeah. his career, just going off the top of my head. I did a bunch of them when he was in St. Louis and in Vegas. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with his body of work. Um, I would just say that I think the biggest thing with Ryan is he's a stabler, stabilizer, I should say. He is a nuclear deterrent around the league so that if people want to mess around with the Toronto Maple Leafs, they know they have to go through him, and that's not always pleasant. So, yeah, I mean, will he be popular? Yes, he will. Um, But, again, how much will he have a chance to do that? I, I don't know. I don't know how many people are going to be wanting to do that with him. Yeah, to the the quiet group part of this as well. And I I heard Luke Fox earlier on the Jeff Merrick show talk, give an anecdote about how he was talking to a Western Conference GM who was watching Leafs practice and said, boy, are they always this quiet? That it is, it's it's an understated group. I mean, and it starts with the captain, John Tavares, who who leads by example, not necessarily vocally. Can you you win like that? I mean, or does there have to be a little bit more chatter, uh, a little more back and forth? Do you need somebody like Orion Reeves to, to, to say something every now and then? Energy matters a lot. It really matters. Um, you know, I think back to when St. Louis won the Cup uh, in 2019 and, and how vocal Alex Petrangelo was in particular. Um, I think back to when Washington won it in 2018 and Ovechkin and how vocal he was uh, during all facets of the game. So, you know, I think back to the two teams I was a part of that won the Stanley Cup in 91 and 92 in Pittsburgh. And, we had a ton of vocal guys. We had a lot of energy people. The first year, Kevin Stevens, Mark Recchi, they were unbelievably loud. Alfie Samuelson. Uh, and then the second year, we bring in Shell Samuelson. You have Alfie Samuelson. You got Rick Tockett. So, yeah, I think you got to have vocal energy. You got a lot of athletic energy, too, but you got to have some vocal energy. There's no question. Yeah, and some of that came in the form of Ryan O'Reilly at the trade deadline, who was, uh, was a good player for the Toronto Maple Leafs, scored some, some key goals in the postseason, won a ton of faceoffs. Um, decided he didn't want to come back to the Leafs. Like, there's bearing reports on this, but they're all pretty aligned in, in saying that, that he didn't even want to hear an offer from the Toronto Maple Leafs, that he he was moving off uh, of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, there's different reasons you can infer as to, to why he's taking that uh, that mode of, of, of decision-making. One is that maybe he didn't like what he saw as far as the nucleus and their ability to win. The other is, you know, maybe he just didn't enjoy the 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 media culture here. And, and there's, you know, some indication that maybe he, guys don't, always enjoy playing so close to home like do you have any experience with this Pierre like does do any of those reasons make sense to you um some could make sense but I I I have too much respect for Ryan O'Reilly so I think playing the speculation game when it concerns him or any member of the National Hockey League that I respect I'm not going to do it Mm -hmm. um and I really respect Ryan a lot the one thing I'd say is, is that um, and I know people discount this a lot, but he, he's gone to Nashville in a very interesting situation with a brand-new general manager, a brand-new coach in Andrew Burnett, I think a really solid hockey person in Barry Trotz. They bring in Luke Shen, somebody that I think Ryan O'Reilly has a very good relationship with on the ice. Um, and Ryan sees that they move Duchesne out of there, they move Ryan Johansson out of there. And, you know, he spent a lot of time playing against those Nashville teams that were coached by Barry Trotz over the course of his career. So, I, I've, I think Ryan probably looked at some things, and here's the, the final dagger that people in Canada don't want to hear, um, is that you know there are no taxes in the state of Tennessee where he's yeah. playing. And, and this is something that's going to become more and more prevalent as we go along. I know there's more to it than just this, Ben, but you know there hasn't been a, a Stanley Cup winning team from Canada since 1993. I think most people know that. 
And it's part of it. I'm not saying it's all of it, but it's part of it. And that is the taxation issues are are major problems for some of these groups and really are. Well, and Pierre, you live in the United States right now. So I, I don't know. Like there, there was apparently, and I'm not, I'm no uh, accountant, but there, there was this report uh, a couple of months ago, or at least a couple of weeks ago, that Jose Bautista and a bunch of former Blue Jays are are battling the Canadian Revenue Agency in court over what they thought were tax shelters that were like designed as as pension plans that were you know very loosey goosey with the rules. That maybe that part of it is even coming in because I'm I'm sure there are agents or at least there are franchises that try and sell the agents on these potential tax shelters. I mean, is there any indication that the people are paying attention to that court case? And and forgive me if you if you haven't if you're not well versed in it or haven't heard of it. But like it it when it when I first saw it, Elliot Friedman mentioned it. Like it it did jump off the page to me. No, no, I, I'm pretty well versed in it. I talk to agents all the time. I still have a residence in Canada. My children are Canadian. I'm Canadian. My wife's Canadian. So, yeah, uh, even though I'm hanging my hat in the United States right now, um, I just recently sold a property in Ottawa where I used to work. So I'm pretty up to date on some of the things going on. Um, yeah, no, I, I can't speak to the baseball part of it, but I can speak to the hockey part of it. And agents are aware of some of this. Absolutely, they're aware of some of this. Uh, so, I mean, everybody's kind of cranking up the, uh, well, at least in the media side, they're cranking up the, the trucks, getting ready to go up north, uh, north to Muskoka and, and get some cottage time um, because that's the way NHL free agency works. It's a couple of days of madness, and then it really cools down. Although there's some notable guys that could move in trade that haven't. Uh, one of them is Eric Carlson, and, and who knows if we even see a consummation before uh, opening day of this upcoming season. It's such a complicated deal considering how much money he's still owed and how much the, the Sharks would have to eat on that. Also, William Nylander with a potential extension coming, um, but maybe not. And he, he now has a 10-team no-movement clause. How comfortable do you think Brad True Living should be or will be in playing out the season with William Nylander as he tries to work out an extension? Or is this a situation where you can't afford to lose the player for nothing that if you cannot figure out an extension by opening day, you have to move him? Yeah, no, I, I, again, Brad's just new to the job there. He's done a lot of good work here in a short period of time. I know people would like to see him maybe be a little bit louder in terms of some of the work that he's done, but uh, he's playing with a pretty tough deck right now that was left for him in terms of salary cap situations. So he'll figure that out internally. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, Ben, speculating on what Brad may do with, with William Nylander, but you have to say this, there's not a lot of 40-goal guys around yeah. that are available to trade. And obviously, William uh, had a tremendous year last year and has been a very good player for Toronto for a bunch of years now. Uh, before that, you go, so Matt Murray's the other, like, hanging chat out there that I think yeah. that, that that one's got to resolve itself, I would imagine, uh, Pierre, and, and whether the Maple Leafs and Brad Drew Living take advantage of the second buyout window or uh, maybe attach a draft pick to, to Matt Murray. Now, the buyout would hit them with uh, less than a million-dollar cap hit this year, but over $2 million next year. Um how, what would be the going rate for, for making $4.6 million disappear in this cap world? Well, there's, there are draft picks probably involved in that. It's not easy to do, but I would imagine uh, picks would be involved. Um, so probably second, third round picks, something like that. We've seen some of those deals earlier. I'm remiss now on some of the names, but we've seen some of those happen. Um, the one thing I'd say is that, uh, you know, obviously when you look at how well Joseph Wall played last year when he had an opportunity to play uh, in Toronto. Um, that was very impressive. And so I, I think it would be tough for Matt to stay there. But, again, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, last one. Back to Max Domi for a second because, yeah, 
I mean, there's a lot of people crossing their fingers that Sam Lafferty will, will give up his uh, number 28 to, to Max, and there's some great pictures going around of him back at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens uh, with Ty on the ice, and obviously the, the connection to this franchise is something significant. Um, and Bradtree Living did a good job to, like, tamp down that that, that that had minimal to do with the signing. But if you do have a chance to do... I mean, this is the entertainment business as well, Pierre. Like, can that factor in a little bit that, that hey, you're, you might have a chance to sell some, some 28 Domi sweaters? Absolutely. I, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, Sam Lafferty's not a dumb kid. He went to Deerfield Academy, one of the top prep schools in the United States, and he went to Brown University. He's not a dummy. He's a really smart guy. Um, so I'm sure he's going to probably say, hey, Max, we can work this out. A couple first-class tickets to Hawaii in 10 days on your wallet. It works <laughs> out well, and you can get 28. Um, that's the way it used to be back in the day. Guys get traded and want a different number, and the guy would wink at the other guy and say, okay, here, here's the deal. A couple first-class tickets to Europe, a couple first-class tickets to Hawaii. So I think anything can work out. And uh, I'd love to be the guy that's counting the money on all the uh, Connor Bedard sweaters that are being sold in Chicago. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you'd you'd be uh, you'd be you'd be busy for sure. Uh, Kevin, yeah, so I think the same thing. The same thing can take place in Toronto if everybody gets a little bit creative with uh, with Max Domi. Uh, I think that's probably going to be the case. Pierre, uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. Anytime. Take care. All right, there is uh, Pierre McGuire, former NHL executive. Is the Maple Leafs okay? Brad Tree Living identifying what so many have identified before him that this team is soulless. It has no soul. <laughs> Uh, and they're very quiet, uh, and they shrink in big moments, and they're not physical enough. We've done it before, though. I mean, as far as the vocal thing, like not loud enough, I'm pretty sure Joe Thornton was a loud dude, right? Like he was the most vocal. How'd that work out? Physicality. Wayne Simmons, who's more physical than the, the Wayne train? How'd that work out? I, I, not to say that this won't work out, but, man, how many times have we had the same conversation about this Leafs team and the same things that need to be identified? And at least in this instance, there is um, an indication that there is an acknowledgement that shoring up the defense isn't the issue for this team, as, as many who don't watch the Maple Leafs seem to love to pontificate about, that they think this is a team from five years ago that couldn't keep the puck out of their own net. No, nah, this is a team that couldn't score. Like, go back and look at the five games against the Panthers team that, yeah, made an incredible run. And, yes, they had a goalie play incredibly well for a prolonged period of time, and they knocked off the best regular season team in history in seven games. But uh, you can score against them. Like, they do allow opportunities. Maple Leafs couldn't create them. And so, yeah, Mike Ma- Max Domi has some, like, defensive limitations. John Klingberg, well, you know what? His best years are clearly behind him. Um, but if there is a selling feature at just less than five million bucks it's that you know maybe you can step into power play one and uh contribute offensively from the blue line there this team needs to score goals i mean it would be ideal if the 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 core four guys could step up as they failed to do in the panther series i mean i guess they did you talk about winning uh, a first round series for the first time in almost a decade but then it all dried up against the panthers um so maple Leafs are going to look different if nothing else in 2023-24 let's bring in a producer Mike Gentili. Uh, I love Pierre. Pierre's got lots of energy. Pierre knows about the tax situation. A lot Mike, of stories. He, just, he just sold a house in Ottawa. So he's he's well versed in 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 and how to save the most money from uh, the Canadian government. But I got some news on your uh, jersey number story. Okay, give it to me. 
The Leafs have tweeted out new digits for all the new players. You want to hear them? Okay, let's hear them. Let's go. Uh, okay, Ryan Reeves, 75. All right. Klingberg's number three. Bertuzzi's number 59. And the big one, Max Domi is number what? 11. Oh, that's not cool. That's. But- I looked around. He was 13 with the Hawks, 13 with the Habs, like 18 with the Stars. Was Alex Kerfoot? Yeah, so there's the, like there wasn't like a rhyme or reason around it. Owen Nolan? Yeah, that's brutal, man. I, I can't say that I'm a fan of that. Like, well, was there not any discussion about taking 20, 28 away? Here's the thing. 28 makes sense, but there's two things. One is... Then all the you know the people that have twenty eight Domi jerseys could wear them again. That's why you got to oh, buy a smart. new one. <laughs> that's smart. It's one idea. Yeah, and I wonder if Max himself would rather just separate himself from his dad's shadow a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting. I like, like the twenty eight idea, but I just wonder if he just kind of wants to be his own guy. Sure, you know, and and that's an interesting point, and I can understand that. Um, he's a very different player, obviously, right? Like like Ty, well, one played in a different era in which physical play was a lot more a part of the game, and I think maybe we've gone too far in the the direction of thinking that it's not a part of the game, especially when uh, April, May, and June roll didn't, around. Didn't Ty Domi play when there was fighting in hockey? Uh, he did. <laughs> he did play when there was fighting in hockey. But beyond that, you could you could pay your fourth liners, your enforcers a little bit more without any repercussions because there was no salary cap. But yeah, no, they're they're different players. And I would say that like it is encouraging the Max has kind of leaned into it, right? Like he's he's not shying away from the fact that that he he always wanted to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh he played for their rival for a long time. You know, he's he's been around the block more than a few times and probably speaks to his defensive liabilities. But I like that he's kind of leaning into the lineage thing. That he's, you know, he's reposting pictures of himself with his dad at Maple Leaf Gardens with the with the old Toronto Maple Leafs. I would say, though, man, to my point about this seems to be an old saw for this Leafs team, right? Like that you're, you're trying to you're trying to recreate some of the offense lost in free agency, no doubt. But there's always this this push for similar players. And it's interesting to get fresh eyes on it. And Brad Living, he looked at this team the same way that I think a lot of people do, that there's lots of skill especially on the first two lines, and maybe, you know, some of that is starting to dissipate in the form of John Tavares, but that there is there is a something, there's something that's unquantifiable that's missing. And even though Ryan Reeves, you know, has never scored double-digit goals in a National Hockey League season, and despite the fact that he is, he's in his late 30s, still identified as a guy that can have some impact on this team, which I, if we're going to see it, I find it hard to believe that we're going to see it during the regular season. Well, first it was the babysitter uh, pattern. Mm-hmm. It was Spezza. It was Marlowe, Thornton. Then they moved more into let's get tougher pattern, which was last year. O'Reilly, which, by the way, this is a funny quote we're going to read for you in a second mm-hmm. about him not wanting to be in Toronto. But on but on the Domi front, Tree Living was asked, and it was quite the opposite, how badly this guy wanted to be here. He... He has been dying to play in Toronto for a long time. And players, having players, wherever you are, having players, it, it, it means a great deal to them to pull on that jersey, I think, is, is important. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. That this right. guy, I mean, so if you want to go down the list of things the Leafs have tried, they've tried guys without cups that are desperate to win one. <laughs> Patrick yeah. Marlowe and Joe right. Thornton. Yeah. They've tried guys that are enforcers that, you know, were prototypical power forwards in their prime in Wayne Simmons, obviously, yep. was past his prime. 
How about try the guy that, that has the same name as one of the all-time franchise fan favorites? I was going to say greats, and yeah, Ty Domi certainly had great moments, and yeah, elbowing Scott Niedermeyer in the head was probably not among them. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is a new one. Hey, this is right out of the Toronto Blue Jays, um, uh, like out of their handbook. Although, I mean, we're not talking about Vlad Sr. or Dante Bichette or, um, or Biggio playing for the Toronto Blue Jays. But yeah, mm-hmm. let... let no, might, it might sense. as well like, give it a whirl. Of. Yeah. Well, and then on the O'Reilly thing, so it, it was like the opposite because you saw the news today that he basically didn't even allow the Leafs to make an offer. Mm-hmm. And Tree Living was asked, and he said, listen, he loved playing here, loved our players, loved the room. Wow, this sounds pretty nice. But sometimes when you're from this area, there's a lot more to it. I don't know if I buy that. Um, yeah, I mean, what that implies is that there's, like, a demand on your time when it comes to maybe your family members asking for tickets. Maybe it's, um, yeah, just being closer to home in that you're expected maybe to visit with your family members. Kind of feels like it's putting on the putting it on the O'Reilly family uh, for why Ryan O'Reilly didn't re-sign in Toronto. There's also this indication that, like, he's a big music fan uh, and, and moving to Nashville is, you know, going to that side of his personality and i i think it it shouldn't be forgotten that pierre mcguire mentioned there's no state taxes in tennessee uh when you want a stanley cup you can you can, can prioritize other things because it won't be the ability to uh win in in nashville all right uh when we come back the toronto raptors have a significant departure on their hands that they've tried to backfill with dennis schroeder who's a fine player but not even close to the level of a guy who just signed a three-year max contract with the Houston Rockets. We'll talk to Frank Isola of SiriusXM NBA Radio about Fred Van Vliet's departure and could the Raptors be sneakily involved in a Dame Lillard transaction? That and much more next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Uh, We're with you until 6 o'clock. Special uh, free agency holiday Monday edition of The Fan Drive Time. So Maple Leafs recouping some assets after a bunch went out the door for more money uh, than they were making when they became Toronto Maple Leafs, as is their want, as is normally the case for for guys that come over at the trade deadline or sign one-year prove-it deals. They get paid more. When they spend a year in the hockey mecca playing a ver- for a very talented Toronto Maple Leafs team, um, I guess the same could be said of the Toronto Raptors because they uh, they made a calculated gamble at this past trade deadline, betting they would not regret holding firm on their prices for pending free agents Fred VanVleet, Gary Trent Jr., and Jakob Pertle. Uh, all good on the Pertle and Trent front as Trent opted in and. Uh, apparently, they're working on a long-term extension. Jakob Pertle signing for maybe an extra year than than you would have liked, but uh, $20 million per was about the going right. Um, Fred Van Vliet, can't fault him for for taking the bag, man. Three-year max deal worth $130 million with the Houston Rockets, who were always going to have a boatload of cap space. I guess the last couple of weeks where they shifted off of James Harden changed everything for them, and all of a sudden, uh, no offense to Dennis Schroeder, 
but he's your starting point guard on game one of 82 next season. Let's bring in Frank Isola, Sirius XM, NBA radio. Uh, Frank, uh, thanks for doing this. How's it going? Sure, sure. How you doing? I'm doing all right. So Fred Van Vliet, uh, a max player. It seems the, that the, the Rockets chose him over James Harden. Do you think they made the right call? Oh, yeah. I, I've never understood the Houston's love affair with wanting to bring back James Harden. He played really well for them, obviously. The first time around, he was an MVP. They made some deep runs in the playoffs. But where he is at his stage of the career, of his career, and where the rest of the team is, I never thought it made any sense. And, I'm, you know, you bring in a guy like Chris Paul, Chris Paul can kind of set a good example for the younger players. I think uh, Fred Van Vliet will do the same thing. I'm not so sure that's really what James Harden is going to do. So I think Houston made the right move, and Fred Van Vliet obviously made the, uh, the right move. That's a lot of money for a guy that never would, that was undrafted. Yeah, I know. It's an unbelievable success story for a guy that was an undrafted free agent whose motto is bet on yourself. Uh, he bet on himself and, and, and won big. Uh, I mean, it is a circumstance of, hey, it being a weak free agent cra- uh, class, I, I get that, and, and, and yada, yada, yada. But this is a guy who's an NBA champion and was a major contributor during that 2019 run. I mean, if I told you a couple of years ago Fred Van Vliet would be a max player in the NBA, what would you have said? Well, if you told me that in game three of what was that, the 2019 Eastern Conference Finals before yeah. he went off in that, in that overtime period, I would have said you're nuts yeah. if you think he's ever going to get that money. But what you love about Fred VanVleet, you know, he's tough. He uh, he brings leadership. You know, he's great with the media, which, you know, people could think that that's a small thing, but it's always good to have a guy that is kind of, uh, you know, sending out the right message to the, you know, the ticket buying public. It, it is amazing. It, it is an incredible story what, what he's become. And you think about it, too. If you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, you know, it was tougher players of that size to make it big in the NBA and then also to get paid like that. But the league has changed a lot. You know, the three-point shot is, is, is such a big part of today's NBA that a guy like Fred Van Vliet can make that kind of money. What a career he's had. I mean, you know, no matter what happens in Houston, and I'm sure he's going to put in a professional effort all the time, and they have a good coach there. Maybe he may can get to some of those young guys on the team and get him to stay kind of focused on defense and winning and rebounding and things like that. But Fred Van Vliet, has already had a nice career considering he has a he already has an MVP I'm sorry a a world championship ring yeah uh and I believe Hubie Brown also gave him a, a finals MVP vote in that in that finals uh Kawhi whatever I think he got a finals MVP vote which counts for something uh did, did Masai Ujiri screw this up though by not trading him at the deadline because this was a team that instead of selling and they had a lot of pieces that people were interested including Fred and there was talk that the Clippers were down the road in, in trade conversations with the Raptors at the time, uh, and the Raptors holding firm on 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 their price and wasn't met, and instead they gave up a first-round pick to go get Jakob Bertel, who re-signs. Like, in retrospect now, and I know we're playing the results, which is unfair, um, but this was always a possibility. Did the Raptors screw up the last trade deadline? Yeah, and I, th- I also think, you know, you look at what happened just to there in the play-in tournament, and the team that beat them, Chicago, has a fourth-quarter lead on Miami on the road. And Miami ends up going to the NBA Finals. So I think Besai probably believed that if things were to somehow break right, and I think if now that, you know, in retrospect, you look at the Eastern Conference, and those teams were certainly flawed, including Boston and Milwaukee, which, you know, was affected by Giannis getting hurt. So I think Masai probably felt, you know what, let me try to make one run with this team. But, when you know, now that you look back on it, you know, if you knew the guy was going to leave, if you were pretty convinced, two things. If you knew he was going to leave and you knew he didn't want him, 
either get, try to work out some kind of sign and trade where you get something back, or I agree with you, you could have traded him at the deadline. Because I do think there were a lot of teams that are interested with the, knowing full well that he could be a rental. Mm-hmm. So I do think you are kind of reducing the market somewhat because if you're trading to a team that doesn't really want to resign him but is going for it, they're not really going to be willing to offer that much up. But it is, you know, what stinks about the NBA, and you see it with Miami, uh, with Max Struess leaving, and you see it with uh, Fred Van Vliet leaving. It's like players that these teams developed and turned into really good players, but, you know, A, they didn't bring them back, and sometimes they're financial reasons, but to not get anything for them, it just seems it doesn't seem right in a lot of ways. No, it doesn't. I mean, you hit on something, yeah, that the, the, the whole play-in tournament thing and that they – Raptors missed uh, a ton of free throws in that play-in tournament game, um, thanks to DeMar DeRozan's daughter who was screaming at them. Uh, yeah. that, was, that was very, very adorable, by the way. Thank God I wasn't sitting near her. I don't think I would think it was so adorable. No, and yeah, those of us uh, watching the game with the sound on uh, didn't find it all that adorable either. Uh, but it almost got them in, into the playoffs, as you might rightly point out, that they had a, a lead against the Miami Heat in game two of that play-in series. Um, Masai Ujiri, at, at numerous points, though, Frank, has talked about the 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 era of parody that he believes we're in in the NBA, and I mean, and you you mentioned that Bucks team who was a surprise loser, of course, uh, to an eight seed in in the Miami Heat a season ago. The Celtics, though, um, you know, made a finals a couple years ago, and and they've still got a good team and and an MVP contender in in uh, Jason Tatum. Uh, the Sixers do have the reigning MVP in Joel Embiid. Do you believe that 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 the claim of of parody is does it, it, it like are we in an era of, of unparalleled parity at least in the Eastern Conference? I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. You look what the New York Knicks did; they knocked off the higher seeded Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round, second round. They played Miami really well. In fact, they had a shot late in the fourth quarter of Game Six of sending that series back to New York for a decisive Game Seven. Then you know Jason Tatum, clearly a terrific player, but look at how poorly uh, Boston Celtics played really throughout that series against Miami, and then in Game Seven they were terrible. The Philadelphia 76ers, they should have beaten Boston in that game six. They fell apart down the stretch. Milwaukee with Giannis, and Giannis is a great player, but Middleton's getting up there, and Middleton looks slow. He looked out of shape. He's been injured a lot. They're bringing that whole group back. I get it, but you wonder how much longer they're going to hold up. You know, this idea, you know, Michael Jordan and guys like LeBron James who could dominate the league by themselves, I'm not so sure – we have that player right now, unless it's Jokic, because if you think about what Jokic won with, and I know everyone up in Canada loves Jamal Murray, he's a terrific player. Mm-hmm. Jamal Murray's never made an all-star team. Yeah. So Nikola Jokic won a, you know, he won an NBA championship without a second all-star, official second all-star, and he also won a championship with Michael Porter Jr. on his team, which is also saying something. <laughs> so Nikola Jokic, yeah. you talk about somebody elevating the level of player on his team. That's why it's funny. You have you know, Bradley Beal forcing his way to Phoenix where he could join uh, Devin Booker and Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard, obviously trying to force his way to Miami so he could team up with uh, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. You know, Nicole Jokic doesn't have that kind of player. I mean, I hope this year that Jamal Murray gets recognized for not only what he did in the playoffs, but last season and hopefully has a good start to the season. He does make an all-star team. But, you know, nobody's talking about any big three mm-hmm. on the Denver Nuggets. It's really been the big one, Nicole Jokic, who was the classic superstar player much like LeBron did really for 20 years now, has made all his teammates better. But I, I think there's a, a pretty valid point that you're making that in the Eastern Conference, I'm not so sure we have that anymore. Well, and that's maybe why, well, part of it, it might be why uh, Damian Lillard wants to force his way to Miami as he's finally decided he's had enough with this Portland Trailblazers team and 
that did appear to be the indication that if if they held on to that third overall pick, that he would likely ask to be traded um, because clearly they're in a in a rebuild mode and not a win now mode. I mean, the the, the Blazers front office has been pretty out, uh, uh, out front on this, uh, Frank. When it comes to hey. He may want to go somewhere, but he doesn't have a no-trade clause, and, and we can send him wherever we want. Uh, we'll probably acquiesce to the trade request, but we're not just going to place him somewhere because that's where he wants to go. We're going to try and extract the best return on this. We've heard big talk like this before, though, and it hasn't really played out. How, how do you see this one ending? Yeah, I'm not so sure there's as big of a market for Damian Lillard as people think because of the contract that he has uh, coming to him. And he is getting up there in age. And if you look at the last couple of years, he has missed a lot of games. So it's a limited amount of teams, A, that would want to add a player that that age who feel like they could win a championship. And then you also have to be able to afford it, then have the assets to trade for him. I don't think he's handled it really well in a lot of ways. I think this was something that should have been worked out before the draft where he should have, he should have realized, I mean, Portland should have realized it last year, that the ship has kind of sailed with Damian Lillard in Portland. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, his timeline right now is different. Then the Portland Trailblazers, they're, you know, a younger team. They just drafted Scoot Henderson. And, you know, by the time they get good again to compete, he'll be probably 37 or 38. But I don't understand why on, like, the first day of free agency they, that he comes out with a big announcement that he wants to be traded. Why don't they just do this behind the scenes? Maybe, you know, their season ended in April, for crying out loud. What, what, what did he really think was going to happen on the first day of free agency that, was changed, that would change his mind? And I think the Portland Trailblazers have handled it really well. They came out with a statement. Mm-hmm. He, he identified, he notified us that he wants to be traded. So right away they put it all on the player and they said, you know, he, he, he's picked a certain team or teams that he wants to go to, but where we will make the best deal that we feel it will help the team. If you go back to last season, right before free agency, Kevin Durant told the Nets he wanted to be traded and the Brooklyn Nets said, yeah, sure, we'll trade you only if we get a deal that we think is good. And sure enough, Kevin Durant began the season on the Brooklyn Net roster. Then in February, he went to them and said, can you trade me to Phoenix? This was all done behind the scenes. And the Nets got a deal that they liked. And they ended up getting Mikael Bridges, who you know everyone in the league calls up to ask about. They're hoping to steal him from the Nets, which isn't going to happen. And the other player was Cam Johnson, who the Nets just resigned mm-hmm. to an extension. So the Nets got the deal that they want. And if I'm Portland, I'm doing the same thing. Now, you don't want it to drag into the season. It would be kind of an awkward situation, but I'm holding firm if I'm Portland. If I could trade into Miami where he wants to go, that's great. But if I don't think that's the best deal, and I think, you know, Team X has a better deal for us, I'm doing that deal. Yeah, that that makes a, a lot of sense, but, you know, it, it can get ugly, as it did for James Harden in Houston by the end, right? And and it's it's yeah one of his three trade requests uh, over the last three years here, Frank, and I guess there's now a new report that, that, that the at least the Sixers believe that all is not lost and that maybe he can return on the one-year or player option for, what, 36 million bucks. Um, But this is a guy who, like I said, three trade requests over the last not even three years. He's one of the great scorers, and he's a a Hall of Famer. There's no question. You mentioned those Houston teams and how close they were to knocking off a dynastic Golden State Warriors team if they didn't have a a historically poor shooting stretch in the second half of a Game 7. But... Like, how close to the top of, of James Harden's Wikipedia page by the end of his career is it? Is it going to be that he, you know, soured himself on three separate franchises and played his way out and made three separate trade requests? Yeah, and, and I've always been a pretty big James Harden guy. I don't like the way that he's handled some of his departures, certainly from Houston and from the Brooklyn Nets. And last year, if you go back to the second-round series against Boston, he had the 42-point game, either 42 or 45 in game one, and then he had another 40-plus game 
in game four. So in those moments, he has played well. But in the last four minutes of game six, with a chance to eliminate the Boston Celtics and make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, James Harden didn't deliver, just like Joel Embiid didn't deliver. And then in game seven, both of them were nowhere to be found. And now James Harden on his resume has a lot of these games, especially game seven, where he hasn't come through. And I watched him in the, you know, I was at all four games against the Brooklyn Nets in the uh, Philadelphia series uh, in the first round. And he just really, like, he was struggling to finish at the rim. He looked like he had lost his step. He could still be an effective player. And if he ends up on the Clippers and with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and he's your third guy, I don't have any problem with that. And let's be fair, if he ends up on the Philadelphia 76ers with Tyrese Maxey and Joel Embiid, and he kind of takes on a lesser role where he's not as ball dominant, and good luck with that, it could still work. I still think you could win with him. You just can't win with him as your best player. Those days are long gone. Uh, can you win with Zion Williamson? Of, co- of course, the, the question is, can he stay on the on the court? Um, that's a question for any – it's a question for the Pelicans. It would obviously be a major question for somebody acquiring him. If, if you were a team like the Raptors, would you inquire about acquiring Zion? Is, is he worth the assets that you would have to give up to get him, considering the, the risk of injury? I know a lot of people say I take him in a heartbeat. And, you know, when you look when he does play, what was he averaging, 29 points, and he's shooting over 60%. From the field, I got the chance to see him in person on opening night. He was dominant, hadn't played over 500 days, and it looked like he hadn't uh, missed a beat. He was, he's obviously talented. I, he just doesn't play enough. He's played 114 games in four years. Yeah, And, you know, forget about all this off-the-court stuff. I just don't know if he just doesn't come across as a guy that could stay injury-free, that can stay in really good shape. So, realistically, how many games can you get at him? Can you get 60 games at him and cross your fingers and hope that he's ready for the playoffs? Uh, I get it. The upside, he could knock it out of the park. If he could somehow uh, control his fitness and stay healthy, he could be a dominant player. He's got that kind of ability, but the record speaks for itself. He got hurt his only year at Duke, and in four years in the NBA, 114 games, that includes missing an entire season a year ago, and I think what this year made it to, what, 29 games it might have been. So he just doesn't play enough. No, I mean, the track record speaks for itself. Uh, Frank, appreciate the time. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Sure. See you. Enjoy your summer. Yeah, you too. Frank Isola, Sirius XM, NBA radio. And we should have had an indication that, yeah, Zion would have a tough time staying on the court when, one, as Frank Riley points out, he had an injury history at Duke, but two, he's the heaviest player in the NBA. <laughs> an NBA that em- em- employs Bobon. Heavier than Bobon. Heaviest player in the NBA. Now you got this off-court uh, stuff, which if you haven't paid attention to, like his ex-girlfriend is like spilling the beans on like <laughs> the number of like four-liter uh, soda bottles that were strewn all over <laughs> his his house, uh, which is not not great. And he's owed, what, 40-plus million bucks uh, for the next three, four years. But he's a tremendous, tremendous player. One of the, I mean, you can see it, right? When he plays, he looks like the guy he's supposed to look like, like a franchise changer. I think you have to be pretty desperate, though, to go out and mortgage your future on him. Uh, a situation where, I don't know if you're the highest paid NBA executive like Masai Ujiri, is that the type of move you make? I, I'm thinking uh, probably not. Uh, will the Raptors trade Pascal Siakam? That was another question. Boy, a lot, a lot of whispers out there, Mike. There's a lot. I, I would feel more comfortable trading Pascal than bringing in Dame Lillard. To be honest, like that, that that Kawhi thing can happen more than you know. That's like lightning striking. Yeah, you can't you can't make that a strategy. No, Let, and I, let's let's get a guy on a on a on a you know like one year left who's going to leave you anyway. 
Well, and also Kawhi was such an individual uh, situation because okay, Dane Lillard's great, and like he's he by points per game, he would it would be the most by a player uh, to change teams the following season in NBA history, and he had like mm-hmm. true shooting percentage of over sixty percent. He's had some great postseason moments, as we all recall, right? Like him looking in Russ's face as he's draining, you know, series-ending threes from basically midcourt. And he very famously had second-half leads in a four-game sweep to the Golden State Warriors. They never made a finals, right? Like, he is a great, great player. And it's true he hasn't had a tremendous supporting cast, but you had a pretty good indication that you get Kawhi Leonard. I mean, maybe you're not winning a title, but especially in the Eastern Conference at that time, like, you're talking about somebody who was a top five player in the NBA and in that postseason run looked like the best player in the NBA, which is as much as you want to talk about Dame Lillard being a great and exciting player and the the three-point shooting and all that. Like, nobody's arguing that Dame is, like, the best player in the NBA, which you could legitimately make the argument that the Kawhi uh, was before the trade. And certainly, I mean, proof is in the pudding when you look at the numbers that he put up in that postseason run. Well, he had a finals MVP yeah. going into it where – here it's weird because, uh, as Kevin O'Connor uh, uh, suggested for the Raptors to do it, it would take something like three firsts, a swap, and OG and an OB to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you think about it for a minute, like, the whole talk about OG was you could probably get three or four picks for him. Now you're giving him and the picks away to get a guy that might leave in a year. Well, it's, and, and it's tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. And beyond that, I, I know guy has to play out. He has to play for whatever team he's traded to, like contractually obligated to do so. Um, in in that respect, it's also different from the Kawhi thing because Kawhi had every impetus to prove that he was healthy, that he was deserving of the contract he eventually got from the Clippers after that. I mean, Dame Lillard, what what's to stop him from up, uprooting himself and departing after this upcoming season? Secondarily to that, like to my earlier point, Mike, about, and, and this sounds bad, but like, you're a very comfortable front office, and you you you've earned that I, I, you've earned that comfort. Masai Ujiri, Bobby Webster brought this city a championship. It's first ever, and only four years ago, right? So you you deserve to be well compensated, which they are, and apparently Masai like above and beyond anybody in the NBA. But when you have that kind of dough, I mean, there's an argument to be made that I guess you have security that you can go swing for the fences. But I would argue the opposite. Like, who's going to question Masai Ujiri if this is a perennial playoff team, maybe not a championship-level team? When you make a swing like giving up OG Ananobi and three first-round picks for Dame Lillard, a guy, as you rightly point out, doesn't have no finals MVP on his resume like Kawhi Leonard did when he arrived in 2019 or 2018, going into 2019, and you make the playoffs and maybe go out in the first or second round, or you don't look like a championship contender which you would have to. Like, to justify giving up three first-round picks and one of the best young 3-and-D players in OG Ananobi, you better damn look like you're more than a stone's throw away from winning a championship, which I, I think it would I think it would be hard to argue that they would. No, because your, your big three would be Lillard, Barnes, and Siakam. Yeah. Right? Siakam was a great part of a team, but he wasn't the focal point. Scotty's not there and ready just yet. So that, quote, big three... We're not talking like when KG went to the Celtics here. Well, and, and right? the, the other... <laughs> no, no, for sure. And the other thing going back to 2018 is that this Raptors team was a 50-win team already, right? 
This, this Raptors team of the past season was exactly 500. They were 41 and 41, and I know they were 15 and 10 after the, the trade deadline after acquiring uh, Jakob Pertl. But this is not a team that feels like a superstar away from competing for a championship. And I get it. The Eastern Conference is a little more flat talent-wise than maybe the West is with the reigning finals MVP. The reigning should be three-time consecutive a regular season MVP in, in Nikola Jokic, but there's some great teams out there, man. Like, well, but this is a play-in team, and the other team was a perennial, forget playoff team, Eastern Conference final team. That's it. Is going to get over. So they were literally on the edge mm-hmm. of winning. These guys are like they're a 500 team. No, that's it. Yeah, and, and you can laugh at the Eastern Conference final stuff because, and yeah, they went six games in the Eastern Conference final against LeBron James. Um, but yeah, it's seemingly when LeBron decided to show up for for that series, they were home and cooled out. But yeah, you're right. Like that team had a pedigree. This team has what? We don't know what it is. What is Scotty Barnes for this season? Who knows? Like that's that's maybe the biggest question of all is do we see him closer to the rookie of the year, Scotty Barnes, than we saw uh, in his sophomore season? All right. What is Alec Manoa this season? A lot more encouraging yesterday in New Hampshire than it was in Florida. As he went five innings, striking out 10, only giving up one run. Shai Davidi was in New Hampshire to see the Fisher Cats. He joins me next. The Blue Jays have an off day before starting a series in Chicago against the White Sox tomorrow. Shai Davidi next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkers Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also understand there's a lot of people that, that like to kick me when I'm down. Um, and that's good because um, that means a lot of people want to see me down. That means they don't want to see me come back up. And I'm ready to come back up. I'm ready to, to be a tiger. I'm ready to be a horse on that mound. And I'm ready to help you know our team win, you know, so... Um, you know, I think that's the biggest thing, you know, I've learned through this whole thing is you can kind of get down on yourself. You can, you can think you're not good. Um, you can get emotional about it, but nobody cares. You just got to go out there and compete. Um, you know, and when you're back against the wall, don't lay down, just, just keep fighting. Fan drive time, sports and five, nine, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. That was Alec Manoa talking about being a horse and a tiger and also the mysterious cabal of people who wish him harm, which I, I don't think is real. Most people are rooting for Alec Manoa. Who's, like, got it in for Alec Manoa and hoping that he does not return to the Major Leagues of Baseball? Not sure there's a person. I mean, I guess his the, the rivals, like the fans of other teams, but seems like a stretch to... I mean, I guess if you're a pro athlete, though, you got to kind of create that that uh, facade of, of, hey, everybody's out to get me. You got to do the, the MJ thing. But, uh, yeah, it worked yesterday. Five innings of one run ball in double uh, a for new hampshire against the portland sea dogs 10 strikeouts as well he had three walks in there um what better place to be on a long weekend than in new hampshire shy davidi was there how, how was it was it fun uh it was the weather wasn't great uh but it was really interesting to watch uh watch watch alec manola pitch and also get to talk to him because we really hadn't heard from him uh, since the demotion. And it was basically just hearing about him from other people. But I thought it was important to just hear directly from Alec and give him a chance to to describe what he's been through and 
uh, just get a, get a better bit of a better sense of how he's wrapped his mind around the events of the past few weeks and uh, and the challenge that he's facing now. So uh, definitely really interesting. Although uh, I really wish it uh, it wasn't uh, so dreary and gray there the whole day because it's a it's a really nice ballpark on a great day. Yeah. I've heard it's it's real nice and yeah the fans show out and it's it's one of those cool minor league experiences. So so what was your your big takeaway, Shy, after watching him go five? I think the big thing is that especially once he started got, he got comfortable uh, towards the, the latter part of the second inning and he ran off that streak of what was it nine batters retired in a row eight via strikeout is you just saw glimpses of that swag that hadn't been missing for a long time. It just, it just kind of looked and felt like the Alec Manoa that we got used to watching the past couple of years. And you could see that he was feeling it and that the, that he, he looked confident. Uh, his fastball command was pretty good. Uh, you know, it was hard from uh, the vantage point that we had, but it looked like his slider was, uh, uh, it may be a, a bit hit and miss, but uh, there were several pretty good hits with it as well, a few nice change-ups as well. And those pieces, to me, really struck out, excuse me, stuck out uh, because those are obviously the points of priority that the Blue Jays have stressed and been stressing to him and started to see some of the pieces fall into place for him. Yeah, that's good. And, and certainly res- the results, I, I know they're not everything, uh, as the Blue Jays would tell you, um, because, yeah, we, they didn't just throw away the 11 runs in the Florida Complex League, but did talk about it being more about process than results. I mean, it is, yeah, it, it would have been quite a thing for him to throw up a similar line in A, Shy, right? Like, like the, the results aren't everything, I get it. It's, it's about process. But, yeah, it must be at least, if not encouraging, like not distressing to see Alec Manoa strike out 10 over 5. Yeah, I mean, look, if it was uh, another outing along the lines of the Florida Complex League, it, it might be a little bit harder for everyone to trust in, yeah. in some of the process, right? You need to see some validation for it. And you know, you, you're not striking 10 batters out in five innings by accident, right? It, it's not like a fluke or something that you lucked into. You're obviously doing some things right to make that happen because – even at the double-A level, you know, these are professional hit- hitters. Uh, there was a, one of the top ten prospects in baseball, Marcelo Mayer, uh, it, uh, in the Red Sox system, who was in that game too, a couple other good prospects as well. So it, it, it's not like this was, you know, a bunch, of, a bunch of babies that he was just ripping through. Uh, and when you get some of that validation, I think it matters, right? It, it's the process needs to reveal itself in results, right? You can't at a certain point in time, you can't just go process, process, process. And that's like this magic wand for everything because process doesn't count in the, in the scoreboard. No, it doesn't count in the standings. So uh, I think from that vantage point, you need to see something good. And had it looked more along the lines like that, that FCL line, then at that point it, it would start being a little bit harder to throw out the results. I, I know I, the buzzwords I keep hearing are like um, uh, delivery and, and tweaks in his delivery and mechanical stuff. But like, is there anything that we can specifically point to, like for the layperson, as to what he's working on? Because I mean, when he was in the major leagues, base. I mean, we, we can we can go to the 
the like swagger and confidence and and how he looked just like body language stuff um but there was also like lack of command both in the strike zone and yeah just like an overall way too many walks right and he did have three walks yesterday in in five innings which is not ideal like is there anything specifically we can we can talk about that the Blue Jays are, are are working on with him outside of the stuff that I guess is only going to turn up for people who know about pitching mechanics? Well, you know, I guess the simplest way to describe it is that he felt that when he was coming down the mound, he wasn't driving as he was coming down the mound. And so that essentially was causing his arm to drag and caused some of the misses. And I think what the Blue Jays, uh, will look to in terms of the walks were they uh, especially towards the the latter part of his time in, in the big leagues this season is that they weren't those competitive walks where it's a guy really trying to make the perfect pitch and just being really afraid to attack uh, and that's because and because of that you know he ends up walking guys it's kind of these four pitch walks that aren't really anything versus the more competitive walks where it's, you know, you're trying to make a guy chase your pitch and you're not giving in to him by, by throwing something over the plate and you're like, no problem. Uh, I'm going to get the next guy. And to me, uh, Manoa's walks yesterday were more of the latter, more, more along the lines of the competitive walks, as opposed to the, he's afraid to attack kind of walk. And that, that to me was sort of the big thing. And, and that's, certainly tied into the mechanics because if you feel like you know you're driving you're coming down the hill aggressively then you you're better able to put the fastball where you want it and that was one thing that Manoa said he felt really good about yesterday they felt really strong in his fastball command and that's sort of the key piece so uh, you know there, there is some inside baseball stuff there but I think that's the general principle of, of what they're trying to accomplish they're also you know, they also want to get the slider a bit more effective. Um, but I, I think if you're watching, if, if you're seeing the highlights, I and mean, that's the kind of stuff you look for is the way that he's coming down the hill, the way that's allowing him to, to put the baseball where he wants it. So what's next? Um, because, you know, everybody like optimistically had that, that Saturday start against the Red Sox in mind. And obviously, I don't know if that was ever going to happen, but it obviously wasn't going to happen after that Florida complex league start. So he's much better in a double a start. I, Blue Jays keep talking about not rushing this thing. There is an an, an open rotation spot before the All Star break. Um, what what is the next step for Alec Manoa? It's a great question, one that I'm sure the Blue Jays are thinking long and hard about right now. And I don't know that they had this prejudged one way or the other. That they really wanted to to see where things were going to go yesterday for him, and then go what's next and. I think there's sort of two schools of thought. It's do you just say, all right, let's go. That was enough. Let's push him back and let's, let's keep him rolling here. We've got a need. The Detroit Tigers are a bit of a soft landing outing. Uh, This might be a good combination. Or do you say, you know what? Let's just keep the pressure off from that off him right now. Let's let him really cement some of the stuff that, that you saw on, on Sunday night and then let him just go through the all-star break and make a call after the all-star break. Cause you've got a little bit of time there. So I, those are the sort of the, to me, the, the two routes right now uh, and, and really the points of debate. 
and and part of it will be was was there enough there from Manoa to be just repeatable and automatic and muscle memory and so uh, those things i think will will factor in and and that's really kind of where the conversation is going to be and i'm sure that there's going to be strong strong opinions both ways within the organization um if and when he comes back do you think it's possible the Blue Jays run still like a six-man type rotation in keeping Trevor Richards and Bowden Francis in the rotation? Because I know they haven't won every game, but they've certainly kept the Blue Jays in each game uh, going about five innings in each start. Like, is is there, and we know how much better Kevin Gossman has been on an extra day's rest. Like, is there any indication that they would, you know, just keep those guys uh, in their own rotation spot because they've been so good, even if they add a, a traditional fifth starter back to this rotation? No, you know, maybe if somebody needed an extra day for some reason, okay. But the the, the only real scenario where I, I think that happens is when Hyunjin Ryu is ready and, and able to perform. And maybe they do that for a little bit of time just to help the starters recover a bit from a workload standpoint for what they've had to endure over the past month here with uh, with all the the starts on or all the all the missed days of extra rest that can really catch up so i just i think the blue jays would like to just be able to have trevor richards available when he need him when they need him as opposed to trying to reserve him for longer outings to cover to cover starts and and Baron francis you know they've got a bit of a a decision to make on him too do does he need to go to triple a and just continue making traditional starts and building himself up to be that that depth piece or someone who could be perhaps more than that uh, if given uh, enough runway uh, or do they just leave him here in the bullpen for for a bit and let him mop up innings as needed and uh, you know worry about sort of the development path for him a little bit or put that on the back burner uh, you mentioned Hunjin Ryu he's going to make his First rehab start tomorrow. Um, I don't know if there's clarity on exactly where, whether it's the complex league or, or somewhere else. Like, what is the most optimistic uh, timeline for his return to the major leagues? Well, it's going to be in Florida, one way or the other. So, it's, if it's not the complex league, it's going to be the Florida State League. Uh, and then, I guess from a timeline perspective, if he has no setbacks and everything goes absolutely right. Could he be potentially ready at the end of the month? You know, that's uh, not, it's not impossible. It's on the spectrum of possibilities. I don't know that it's necessarily a likely one, but it's on the realm and something that the Blue Jays uh, will look at. I think obviously they want to make sure first and foremost that Hyunjin Ryu is fully recovered and that, and that he's recovering properly from each outing as well, that they don't do anything that puts him at risk uh, of re-aggravating the injury or, you know, just complicating things from him from a health standpoint. But the, you know, it is intriguing that if he, it, you know, he's said, he's said a couple of times that he wants to be ready to go right after the all-star break. He's, he's got a chance to be pretty close to that. Uh, the Blue Jays won't bring him back uh, if he's only sort of partially built up, right? They want him to get to to be able to go 80, 100 pitches uh, when he does return. So that extends the timeline out a bit. But again, if there are no hiccups, everything goes goes to plan. 
you could at least see a pathway to a return towards the very end of this month. I want to go back to New Hampshire for a second. I forgot to ask you this but before we moved on to Hunjin Ryu. You got to see Aurelvis Martinez, who, who like outside of, of April is is doing, I mean, everything the Blue Jays asked him to do. He's had an OPS of over 1,000 in May. June, it dipped to 871. And in the early stages, a couple of games in July, yeah, he had a couple of hits yesterday, 14-17, which is, I mean, two games. You can't, you can't really exactly look at the OPS. But, like, He's he's not striking out. He's he's coming up with hits. He's he's taking his occasional walks. Like what what is the intel on Arelvis Martinez? Yeah, I actually got a chance to catch up with him a little bit and talk to Cesar Martin, the uh, the the manager there uh, at, at at New Hampshire about him. And it, it's really impressive that you know at the end of last season he or he and the Blue Jays were breaking down his year. Like, and he could very easily have said, look, I'm a 20-year-old and I hit 30 homers in double A. I'm doing great. And instead, he just said, look, I'm, I don't want to be a 30-homer guy with, uh, with a low batting average and just giving away a lot of at-bats. I want to be a high-average uh, guy with 30 homers. And he said, you know, he doesn't have to worry about the power. He knows that he's got plenty of power. Uh, but he has to work on making contact on the right kinds of pitches and swinging at the right kind of pitches. And that was really uh, a focal point for him into the off season. Uh, and even when he got off to a, a really poor start first three weeks, uh, yeah, he was hit, he was batting under a hundred, uh, but he trusted in the work that he did. He felt good uh, with the type of contact he was making and the types of pitches he was swinging at. Uh, and he's gotten the results, you know, the, his walk rate is up 5% from where it was last year. Strikeouts, strikeout rate is down, I think, about 10%, 10 to 11% uh, from where it was a year ago. I mean, those are really significant gains. And it's worth remembering that he's still really, really young for the level. Like, he's 21. Average age in that level is, is like, 20, like late 24, 25-ish. So he's still really young for double A and doing the kind of damage that he's doing, you know, again, it's still a relatively small sample this season, but perhaps something's clicked for him. And if it did, that'd be a really significant development for the Blue Jays because that is uh, the type of power threat that's really hard to acquire and that the Blue Jays don't have uh, enough of in their farm system. No doubt. Uh, He plays a position that they got pretty well covered as far as shortstop. And he plays a little second base. Any talk of him playing some third base, which uh, appears to be vacant next season? Uh, actually, he's been splitting time this season between sec- uh, between short and third. He hasn't played any second. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and so it's uh, the majority of his games have been at shortstop, uh, but it's about, I'd say, roughly a 60-40 split between uh, time at short and, uh, and at third. And uh, he seems to be making gains on, on both those uh, on both those spots, uh, you know, right now he's very clearly a bat first type of player, uh, but he's got uh, he's got some throwing arm, he's got some some range, he's got some ability, and uh, you know we'll see where that takes him. All right, before I let you go, I know you were in New Hampshire, but you were, you were obviously paying attention to uh, the big club uh, who lost again to the Red Sox. Is uh, is their want this season? Zero and seven against Boston, seven and twenty against the American League East, and. I, you know what, I think I'm done talking about, hey, you know what, the record in in, uh, in June wasn't that bad. And, you know, since a certain point, well, you know, they're kind of like, hey, no. Like, <laughs> this is the division they play in against the best teams in baseball, and it sucks that they don't get to play in the American League Central. But 
them's the breaks, and this was a team that was supposed to be a World Series contender. Like, that is jarring. We're now through halfway, like, well, well, we're actually past the mathematical halfway point in the season, but we're almost at the all-star break. I mean, what can you take away from 7-20 and 20 and 0-7 and against, if there is a, a, a whipping boy in this division, and it appears there's not, that that's the Red Sox, the one team behind you, you can't beat them. Yeah, it's it's incredibly weird. It's almost like the Blue Jays' fortunes uh, against the Red Sox last year have just sort of flipped and totally reversed. And now the Red Sox are the team that are always finding a way to win, and the Blue Jays just keep blowing opportunities against them the way that the Red Sox really did last year. Uh, but it, it is part of a pattern, as you mentioned, uh, and it, it's it's significant, right? Because... You know, can you can you get to the playoffs with that kind of uh, winning percentage within your division? Sure, it just means that you know the, when you have the type of week that the Blue Jays are looking at right now with uh, Chicago and Detroit. I mean, that needs to be a six and zero week if you're going to play uh, as poorly within the division as you're playing, and you're just reducing your margin for error against other teams, and then you're putting yourself in a position where you might need some help. Because uh, and the Blue Jays were in that spot in 2021, and they know very well you don't want to do that. So, uh, you know, just based on the way a lot of those games have gone, how close most of them were, uh, that a lot of times it's it's either one pitch or one swing that's that's making a difference. You would think that there should be some normalization of that in the second half, but. Baseball is weird, and maybe this is just one of those really weird times where, for whatever reasons, the matchup just doesn't work against this group. I mean, it's strange that it would happen against four other teams uh, the way that it has. That's pretty atypical. I can't recall seeing a team be as good against everyone else, but as bad as the Blue Jays have been within their division to have such a, a stark disparity, you know, they're, they, they've got to be into some extremely uh, rare territory there. So I, I honestly don't know what to make of it. Clearly the Blue Jays don't know what to make of it. Uh, otherwise they would have turned it around at this point. And this may be one of those leaps of faith that you have to take in baseball that, give it enough time, and it'll normalize. Or they're not good enough. Uh, we, uh, we'll find out second half of the season. Shy, a great job from New Hampshire. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Take care. All right, you too. There's Shy Davidi. Uh, baseball is weird, and weird things happen. But sometimes things happen in a weird game like baseball that make a lot of sense. And, like, maybe after three months of baseball, we should take the results that we have and, like, not treat them as gospel and don't be – immune to the possibility of them changing, but, like, make some assessments on what's happening. And maybe, just maybe, the Blue Jays aren't as good as some of the best teams in baseball, which all happen to re- reside in their division. Like, maybe that's the case. And I know they've they've beaten some good teams, and the Astros are the defending champs, and they, they've come up with some good victories, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, just look at each and every game. It's not like... Blue Jays are getting unlucky in losing some of these games. I mean, they're getting out hitting all of them. And they're doing the things, I mean, go back to Canada Day and Luis Rivera deciding to send Bo Bichette home out by 10 feet. And, I, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And it's not like Blue Jays tie the game up or win it, uh, even if he's not thrown out to end the game. But this team 
was supposed to eliminate the stupid mistakes that they were making a season ago, those are prevalent on a daily basis. And I look at things like process when it comes to offense as far as competitive at-bats, and especially late in games, looking like you're shifting the pressure from you, the batter, onto the pitcher. And you look at the Blue Jays' number of pitches seen per plate appearance, it's bottom six in Major League Baseball. And that's not everything. The the Astros were one of the, the worst teams in baseball a season ago in pitches per plate appearance. They won the World Series. They also had one of the elite, elite pitching staffs in the history of the game. So you can do that if you're if you have an elite pitching staff. And the Blue Jays have a good one. I don't know if we, I would consider it elite, elite, elite. And certainly the offense hasn't been elite, 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 Mike. But, you know, Kevin Gossman, more often than not, has been pretty elite this season. He's an all-star. Absolutely. And you know what? He goes out. He does his thing. He's, uh, as we'll find out in our betting segment next, number three in Cy Young for odds. So he takes care of business. And yesterday, listening to his post game. I don't want to say it was a shot against his team towards them, but uh, there was a message that was delivered. Yeah, I think we have a target on our back. You know, I think um, it sounds bad to say, but, you know, I think people know how talented our team is, and so, you know, they know they have to really bring it. And so if we don't bring it, um, you know, they're going to they're gonna kind of have a higher intensity than us. And so um, we kind of got to know that going in and, and try to match that or, or – um, take over that intensity and so um yeah but i mean the AL east is the hardest division in baseball and obviously against the red sox we're not doing our part right now not against anybody within that division sounds like the blue jays need ryan reeves like honestly like like, (laughs) that is you know what's the 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 most concerning part about that is like kevin gossman knows that what he's about to say in in one of the biggest media markets in north america is going to be parsed and especially people who want answers for a 7-20 start against your own division, they're going to look at that quote and, and analyze it. He knows that. And it is. It like I know quite often we read um, things into to post-game sound that maybe we shouldn't. That sounds calculated in a way, Mike. When, it, when, he, when he talks about, hey, the intensity level and these other teams look at us and, oh, yeah, you guys were one of the World Series favorites coming into the season. What have you won? And, and upping the intensity and it being you know a bonus for these teams to, to beat a, a team like the Toronto Blue Jays and their own intensity not being high enough, like that—that that seems like a—I don't know who it's a shot at, but like, well, he didn't say there like was a, a target on his back that yeah. he needs to be better prepared. It was basically him saying, "Of the intensity, I was the only one that brung it, guys. <laughs> enough." Yeah. Yeah. And like, how many how many games have has he seen wasted? How many starts have been wasted? Yeah, by the lack of offense on his team. And then you're right, what you said earlier, like the sloppiness. The Vlad throw to third yesterday that that allowed the go ahead run. Like yep, you know every uh, game there's at least one play right. And what we, we did a questionable play per game. And this is man, it was every single media availability that John Schneider did preseason during spring training was talking about cleaning things up and about not shooting yourselves in the foot. And it seems like man, the 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 stretches in which they've gone where they played clean baseball have what been like three four days, and then you see it again. It just it has not been a constant theme through the first half of the season, you see it in the record. And, okay, we can talk about them not being, you know, totally um, behind the eight ball when it comes to making the playoffs next season, or this season. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a game and a half is, you can make that up easily enough with a half season of baseball. That was not the goal going into this year, was to win 100 games and win the division, which I get it. The Rays got off to a hot start, but 7-20 and 20 against your own division, that ain't it. Like, I get it. There's, it's a random sport, not that random, 
It's not that random. If you are truly, like, talent for talent, better than these other teams, I'm telling you, you play it out, it, you, you're, there's no scenario in which you end up 7-20 and 20 through 27 games against your own division. They are worse than every team in the division. I don't even care if they have a better record than the Boston Red Sox. They are worse than every team in their division as we approach the All-Star break. Want to hear a weird exchange with John Schneider in the media? Because he was defending yeah. the team's defense in a way. So here it is. It's from yesterday. The question is by Rosie DeMano, the Toronto Star. It gets a little awkward. How would you describe the identity of this team if they even have one? If they even if have they one? If they have one. If, whatever it is. Well, we definitely have an identity. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on good pitching, you know, solid defense and good at bats. You know, that, that's the identity of the team, and that's never going to change. Um, I think to this point in the year, we haven't really fired on all cylinders consistently at the same time. But as far as the identity of the team, I mean, it's, it's a really talented group that, you know, just hasn't clicked at the right time consistently. Yeah, this is another part of the equation, which is, hey, you, you, there's a lot on the line this season for this Blue Jays team. And there's probably um, a reason that's probably part of the reason why I think, and I don't know if you'd even hear too many firm denials that this team was very interested in talking to Terry Francona in the offseason, right? It's a guy with World Series pedigree and no offense to John Schneider. And they weren't, you know, terrified about the John Schneider era. But you are talking about a first-time manager. Um, And in 2023, in Major League Baseball, that doesn't necessarily mean like, hey, filling out the lineup card and in-game strategic adjustments. It means getting the best out of your players. And it must be said, through more than 81 games this season, John Schneider's not gotten the best out of his Toronto Blue Jays team. Now, they went on an incredible run when he took over in the second half of last year after very much underperforming, headed into the All-Star break. So all's not lost here. But, boy, if, if you put any of the, the Kevin Gossman stuff as far as intensity and target on our back stuff, on the manager, and if you're not going to do that, then what does the manager do? Because like I said, it's not X's and O's. That's the front office, and it's just basically him employing whatever their strategy is. No, that's his job. Well, he says we're not firing on all cylinders. We're not, we're not 10 games in here. We're no. not 20 games in here. Half a season. Yeah. And like, you know, we still have, we're still going to put it together. Uh, the clock's ticking. Sorry. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. It doesn't mean on his job, but no, this, this team is under the gun to win a bunch of games in the second half of the season, which they did a season ago. Because uh, they were in a similar spot record-wise a year ago, ended up with 92 wins. All right, when we come back, we'll talk to Mike Fudo about the Snot Boys, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. Get some more snot. Uh, I guess that's Ryan Reeves, and I guess that's Tyler Bertuzzi, and I guess that's Max Domi. We'll talk to Mike Fudo, Sportsnet analyst, former NHL executive. Next, as the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So... Long after Brian Burke departed, still talk about truculence in these parts, right? It's a term we'd never heard really used in relation to a National Hockey League team and an attribute that one would uh, ascribe to hockey players. Early returns on Brad for Living is that he wants a snotty group. Wants more snot. 
uh, as he has acquired a couple of guys with a history of agitation, Max Domi, uh, Ryan Reeves, you know, Tyler Bertuzzi, snot. Uh, Mike Fuda, Sportsnet analyst, former NHL executive, knows what snot is. He joins me now. How's it going, Mike? Wow. What an intro. You know what snot is, right? Like, you, tell me, teach me about well, snot. Berkey, Berkey was a uh, Ivy Leaguer, right? So he'd come up with the bigger words. <laughs> trees, trees, trees of Western Canadian. So he wants snot. But I, I mean, I love it. I, I, I know when we were in Los Angeles, um, when we were our toughest to play against, you know, we were a rugged team. Uh, and it's not just about fighting. Um, it's about presence and, uh, and I just love the movie. I mean, it's funny the Toronto. I mean, the one to one day, it's almost like they're ready to, you know, throw everybody overboard with what's going on with the players that are departing. And then all of a sudden, uh, the sun is shining again. So I, I like the moves that were made. I love uh, the fact that they're on one year deals because they're they're definitely going to have something to prove. Um, as far as Bertuzzi and, and and Max, I mean, I grew up with Ty, so I know what this must mean to him and particularly Max. We had him in Carolina as well for a short period of time that his dream has always been to be a Toronto Maple Leafs. So it's going to be a fun team to watch. And uh, with regards to snot, I mean, the thing that I've heard that kind of confuses me with people talk about a guy like Reeves is that, you know, he's never played in the playoffs. His teams haven't won in the playoffs. Well, the type of player that he brings and the energy he brings it forces guys to not, he brings people into the fight with him. So you, you're going to have a lot less nights where guys get sleepy and drift off because he'll bring them back into it. And uh, I mean, he's obviously tough as nails, but that kind of energy is contagious. Um, and I, and I think it's something that this group sorely needs. I'm sure it's something that when Brad was talking to some of the skill four guys, that this is an element that they needed. I mean, they got Wayne Simmons later in his career, because yeah. Wayne, uh, Wayne was very much this kind of player, but Wayne was also an all-star. I remember when he was with Philadelphia, and and he's not he's fearless of anybody. I mean, as far but when you're doing it at 180 pounds, it's different than doing it at 230 pounds. And I, and I think this allows your skill guys to be fresher going into the playoffs because people aren't going to take liberties. And uh, it's just a fact. And I mean, Colorado, I mean, has a player Curtis McDermott that. Never played a game in the playoffs for them uh, the year they won the Stanley Cup. But throughout the year, people didn't run around taking shots at McKinnon and McCarthy because there was going to be retribution if you did that. And it's not a matter of the guys not standing up for themselves, but it is a factor. And it's not going back to knuckle-dragger hockey or anything like that. It's just a fact. Um, and, I, for example, Milan Lucic talked to me. I mean, we had Lucic in, in Los Angeles, and he talked about – when we when they used to come into Los Angeles and we had Dermy, Curtis McDermott, he thought twice sometimes. Wasn't he scared of him? But he thought twice about running around, huh. you know, and running and running guys around because there's going to be some there's going to be something to pay if you want to take a shot at the guys. If you're going to run at Dowdy and stuff like that. And then once he was gone, that kind of element's out of their head that they need that. So I, I love them. I love the moves. I love the grit. And I love the term. So, I mean, there's still some work to do. I'm a little Klingberg on the back end. Mm. Surprised, surprised me a little bit. I mean, I don't – for a team that's was starting to show so much more structure and defensive accountability, I don't see that in his game at this point. Hopefully, they can find a way to draw it out of him. Um, and kind of like, you know, Eric Carlson can get away 
you can get away with being minus 26 when you got 100 points or whatever it can, right? <laughs> yes. But if you're if you're a guy that's not going to have so much attention to detail uh, on the defensive side, you better you better bring something from a major point produ- production. And he moves the puck well, but again, I hope that uh, as things get closer to training camp, it wouldn't surprise me to see some more grit added on the back end. Um, but anyways, exciting times. Yeah, it is. Um, so there's a lot to get to uh, after uh, what you said there. Um, yeah, let's 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 start with the the, the snot again. Um, because yeah, we, we've this is not the first time that they've attempted to do this, right? And you you rightly point out the Wayne Simmons thing. And man, it would have been nice to have prime Wayne Simmons here, of course. Um, that 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 it's it's been attempted before, and and the pushback that people give is that it's it it's a core thing that that you know as much as you want to try and staple it to the the core, the core is the core. This this team's identity will always be the four guys who are super skilled and great great hockey players. But all of like similar mindset that they they they're like the furthest thing from snotty. Can can you can you just like take outside snot <laughs> and attach it? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't listen. Well, it's this well, all Brad's fault for 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 calling it snot. <laughs> but uh, can can you staple it to to a core of a hockey team that will always be viewed as the core four, and then everybody else? It's it's not something you it, it's it's you either have it internally or you don't have it. But you can you can. Help, help, bring out some more uh, freedom to play a little bit more physical and not be worried, and not, and not so much be worried about being taken liberties on you. I mean, it's it's it is. There are teams their core has got like you look at a Marshawn, right? Like you've got some teams you play against that yep. that have a, a a a far greater blend of that to their top core guys. So what you try and do is surround them. At this point, because it's clearly, you know, I don't know what the situation is with Nylander's contract. Um, but if you bring people around like a Bertuzzi who has that element to it, I mean, he's, a, he's for me, he's just a much better version of bunting um, without the sideshow. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big factor. It's a big factor, and it changes that. Now, Max is another guy that, like, Max isn't, like, bringing here to be a fight, but he just... I mean, I think you saw it last year. People were taking runs at Patrick Kane, who's never, ever had snot. Okay? Uh, he literally gets in there and drags people into the fight because, you know, it's just a nice mix of energy. And I think the fact that these guys want to be here um, is huge. It's huge. And, again, it's just it's an element that you need. And you start to talk, and I, and I have a huge proponent of some of the moves that Kyle tried to make to bring this element I didn't look at them as failures. Like when he brought in Felino, yeah, it didn't fail. Felino got hurt. Yeah. Okay. So we never really got to see what that could have looked like. Um, when they brought in Shen last year, he was exactly what the doctor ordered. But yeah, Shen was. wasn't a Shen wasn't a fire. I mean, I would have loved. I mean, hey, looking back at what some of these guys made that they lost, I would have preferred to spend the money on keeping Shen around with that element. But you, you just don't know if that was there, right? Like, he got a lot of money. I mean, I talked to Shenner a couple weeks ago, and we were kind of joking about what Mark Giordano was allowed to, able to do, but, you know, kind of being like a future possible Hall of Famer who's made a ton of money, that he could take that pay cut to come back in a hometown discount and play for the team he dreamt about playing or Whereas Luke just made more money. You know, he's got a young family. He didn't have that he didn't have that benefit of the last four or five years of making five or six million dollars and he had to get himself paid and you don't know 
until it comes out in the wash what the Leafs were prepared to offer and how they reacted. And I, I don't know. I don't know if and none of us really do. If Klingberg was somebody who was always on the radar screen, mm-hmm. I just uh, I think it might have been a little bit of a reactionary move to to the holes that were created by the departures on the right side. But uh, we'll see what, what we'll see how it pumps out. I mean, obviously, I loved his line. I said he some. I think he said something about locking Brandon. Predaman and broom with no food and water yes. until he comes out with the cap <laughs> figured out. So that's always <laughs> that's always a nice push from the new boss. But I think at least the Toronto market can see now what I've seen for years with Brad um, is that he likes a tough team. He's not afraid to make bold moves. Um, he's a very likable person. When these players start to meet him, they'll feel every bit as comfortable they do with him as the players seemingly felt with Kyle's personality. But he's a different. He's a different. He's a different animal altogether, and his teams are always going to be hard to play against. Yeah, uh, and he's not afraid of creating soundbite, which uh, which he has with the snot stuff. Um, so I, w- I want to go back to the Max Domi stuff, which I mean, man, it is like nostalgia all over Twitter right now, right? With the the incredible Max pictures uh, with him and Ty at Maple Leaf Gardens, and yeah, there's some some really cool stuff, um, which I think is 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 a positive, right? It's it's a net positive, but is there a potential downside to that that like you really and this is, I'm sure, ever since he was playing in junior and, and with the London Knights and, you know, ever since he decided he was going to really try this hockey thing, I'm sure he dreamed of the moment that he could put on the same sweater as his dad uh, did when he was, you know, becoming a fan favorite here in Toronto. Is there a potential downside to to, to, to living out a childhood dream and, and playing for your hometown team? I, you know what? It's a great question, but I just think that the whole makeup of – what Kai was and his legacy in Toronto is completely different player. And I think Max has kind of grown on from that. Like eventually it was Domi, right? So you just assumed Max was going to be an incredible fighter and that was the way he was going to play. And the fact that the kid isn't scared of anybody and, you know, and plays hard and plays tough. This is an incredibly skilled guy. I think he won three championships with the London Knights. Yeah. Um, I thought he kind of couldn't find his way with us, which surprised me because I thought Ryan Brindmore would really like his style of play. I mean, his best game was his last game with us. He scored a couple goals, but I really felt he started to find his game in New York, and it carried over to being a real effective guy again. Like, this guy can really help your power play. He's a really creative passer. He's got a deceptively really good shot, but he doesn't use it enough. Um, But I just think there's going to be something about pulling on that jersey for him that there's just going to be instant accountability. Now it'll be very interesting because Sheldon's got some different type weapons now, and I hope he's on board with utilizing these type players because it's a different dynamic altogether. Uh, if you're not willing to use these players and allow them to produce at, at the top level, so it'll, it'll be it'll be a different it'll be a different look. But I love it. I mean, I again, I grew up. Ty grew up a few doors down from my grandparents on Riding Avenue across from George Bell Arena. And, he used to come to our training camps with Henry Carr and get a couple fights under his belt before he headed off to work. And uh, <laughs> and I can just imagine the Domi clan uh, when this contract was signed um, because it's not lip service that this was a dream of his growing up. And I think everybody should be excited about the energy he's going to bring uh, to the team. And again, being on one-year deals, there's something to be said about <laughs> having that you know, and the cap apparently going up dramatically that if you come and you produce and you do what you're supposed to uh, personally, and if you have team success, you're going to be able to write your own ticket in this city. And I think 
uh, Max is not afraid of the spotlight. Well, and that, that, I mean, they did that with Tyler Bertuzzi as well, who was looking for term and, and couldn't get it and, and decided to, to sign w- with the Leafs on the one-year deal. I mean, it really does feel like the, the Leafs are using that to their advantage. The idea, I mean, you mentioned Luke Shen getting a huge pay raise in the multi-year deal with Nashville and you know, lots of guys all over the place getting, making tons of money after uh, spending some time with the Toronto Maple Leafs, considering the spotlight here, considering <laughs> the amount of media attention that surrounds you when you're a member of the Maple Leafs. I mean, besides the fact, I mean, if there was ever like a prolonged playoff run, what that could do for you. I mean, is that something that the Maple Leafs are, are now, you know, I, I wouldn't say finally because they've done it before, but like really weaponizing the idea of you come to, to the Maple Leafs for a season um, and you fit into our cap sheet for one year, you can hit the open market and, and basically write your own ticket. Absolutely, and you you might have the space to stick around and you might love it. Uh, and, and I think when you're looking at the weapons, if you're a – if you're a winger that, you know, has to put up some numbers to, to you know, earn your take down the road, like look at your, look at your options down the middle uh, as far as and on the wing and who guys you're going to get the chance to play with. So there there should be a nice recipe for someone like Bertuzzi as long as, you know, I, you know, you always write stuff down lines and you hope there's chemistry and, uh, and you hope well, you don't really know until they actually get on the ice with each other, but it really looks like it should be a nice mix. Um, up front, and of course, if he if he produces and plays the way he can and stays healthy, that there's going to be a payday down the road, and hopefully, the Leafs as an organization can benefit from in the short term. But I think I, I do think as they look at their cap situation, things sort itself out. That the one thing I, I among other things, is it's nice to see blue lines. Um, like when we won in 2012, it's the first time ever from December on. So we hoisted the Stanley Cup. We played the same six defensemen. Mm. That that's unheard of. I mean, that's obviously a credit to their health, and we weren't a soft group. So the physicality they played with was surprising. Nobody got injured, but I believe you need eight. You need eight guys that you're not. You know, in the last ones, the last you know couple, they can have different dynamics and different elements to their game. But you need you need to have that kind of depth. And I thought the Leafs it kind of were there last year. Um, I think Mark Giordano's got – it's amazing how a guy goes from carrying your team where you're going through all these injuries and probably playing more than he should have, and then he struggles a little bit in the playoffs and people are calling for retirement. <laughs> this guy had a pretty special season last year, uh, not to say the amount of selflessness he did in taking less money to be a Toronto Maple Leaf, but I'd like to see a little bit more depth. I felt a couple of years back or a few years back, it always scared me when the sixth guy, when the next guy up was Martin Marinson. Um, <laughs> and again, like, you know, hopefully, I don't know, not like if they've got somebody coming in on the back end or it's interesting to see some free agents, if they can catch lightning in a bottle, somewhat like a guy like uh, Chatfield did in Carolina. You know, like you see a team like Vancouver that's dying for defensemen and they had him right under their belt and he gets in a new environment and has turned into a pretty special piece of the pie in Carolina. So, It'll be uh, it'll be interesting. It it seems like, you know, it's ending kind of. This is the part of the season that's ending to take a little break, yeah. and it kind of feels like you want to see them on the ice right away, which is exciting, um, given the disappointment of last year's playoff run. So, this should be a fun team to watch. And I again, I truly believe. Like people made so much big deal about that scene where Luke Shen was between the benches, and in kind of holding Tampa at bay. Well, 
that's great and dandy, but can you, Ryan Reeves between the benches is a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> is a lot more fearful than Shenner. And I know, I know that Shenner turns has really turned his game. It was such an effective player as well as bringing that element. But I think people will enjoy watching the Toronto Maple Leafs with the kind of physicality and energy they can bring on top of the skill set that they already have. Yeah. And at the very least, Ryan Reeves is uh, good for uh, a good uh, quote. He's already been good for a couple uh, before even well, taking the ice. I don't know about the party. Uh, the, I, don't know what, <laughs> I was, I was kind of like, I mean, I know this guy's full of energy, and he's, he's obviously must see when he gets on with the guys from TNT and Scott Oak and stuff like that. But I mean, I think he probably would dial back. Like, is, is there a difference between talking about? And we have Matt Green and Jared Stahl were the perfect example for us that they wanted the guys when you get on the road to just not like you hear certain sports like basketball players they all go off in their own direction as soon as they get and there's something that you said for a team that gets off on the road and everybody goes up and you change in your and you go out and have a team dinner together yeah um and and really hang out and get to know one another and it's and it's huge and and it's not forced it's not fake and most of the successful teams really enjoy doing that i know we certainly that was our mo with the Kings, like, it was just a, you just know, you didn't have to go to four or five different restaurants. They'd all be at the same place together. And they, and it wasn't forced. And it, it dictates, translates into how you play as a team. Now to say, you know, kind of, I'm the guy that coordinates the parties. You might want to wheel that back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I stick with the snot category over the wheel back. The, I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a player's wife sitting at home, yeah. <laughs> like, what's this Reeves guy all about? Uh, you guys yeah. just going to go on the road and party. But, uh, no, I think he, what he meant is just the, the team bond and the team chemistry and, again, keeping that energy level up. Yep. I uh, can't wait to see him. Uh, if you've got to run, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks. Hey, have a great day, bud. Yeah, you too. Uh, Mike Fuda, sports analyst, former NHL executive. Time now for Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Mike Gentili, what do we got? Well, you know, last year, Ben, the Leafs – were like the second favorite team to win the cup. It was always Colorado first. That's right. Toronto too. And then and then the Bruins kind of went nuts. So we thought, well, after all the free agent signings, there must have been a lot of changes in those future bets there. And currently it's yeah, it's Colorado first, plus seven fifty. Leafs and Oilers eleven fifty in the two spot. Yeah. I mean so Vegas. So the public hasn't changed much. Vegas Vegas knows where its bread is buttered, and that's here in the city of Toronto, where people always have optimism, despite, you know, it being a number of decades since uh, they won the ultimate prize. But here's where it's changed. To win the Atlantic, the Leafs are now the favorite over the Bruins and Lightning. That was not the case last year. And they are the favorite to come out of the Eastern Conference. Leafs are first uh, Devils, followed by the Hurricanes. Yeah, the Bruins. Interesting Bru- movement. No, for sure. And the Bruins thing is super interesting. Uh, losing Dmitry Orlov, of course. Losing uh, Taylor Hall. Losing uh, Tyler Bertuzzi. There's uh, some significant departures, including the guy that just won another Selkie, we assume, Patrice Bergeron, although uh, hasn't officially retired. All right, that was Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We'll be back in our customary time slot tomorrow afternoon. 3 to 5, coming up next, Raceline Radio. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. See you tomorrow.